0: And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem and present him to, to, the, to present him to the Lord. that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, what good news. We thank you and praise you. Lord, that we get to celebrate this time of year when we consider that you sent your one and only Son, to be amongst us. Lord, who lived a perfect life and yet died bearing the weight of the sin of the world, and yet he is at your right hand. We thank you, Father, for this good news and what it means for us and what it means for your glory. I pray for my brother as he comes, that you would fill him with your spirit, that he would speak with conviction and passion and truth, and that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive it, that it may change us. Lord, we thank you for all these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.
1: Over the past couple weeks, I have had the privilege, if you don't know, of uh, being able to go into the public schools in our area and to study God's Word with kids, continue to pray for us in Southport Middle School. We have uh, roughly 35 to 40 kids every Thursday morning at 7 o'clock, 7.20, excuse me, coming to study God's Word. And over the past couple weeks have had the joy of being able to share of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. To share why he came. But it's interesting as we share with them and get feedback from what they understand and what they already think about Christmas and this time of year and about Jesus Christ. It's constantly amazing, frustrating, sad to hear all the myth, all the legend that gets mixed up. ...with the truth of God's Word about what really did happen. you know, Even this last week as we just simply combined the two accounts from Matthew and Luke... ...and just read from start to finish the Christmas story... ...and to have the kids evaluate their thoughts about what Christmas was... Uh, ...and about even just the, the nativity story. How even after the Bible study was all over, a couple of them came up and said... ...but I want to know what animals were at the manger... Totally missing the whole point of it. We have another half a year to go. It's interesting, Charles Spurgeon said a few few years ago, just a few, uh, one Christmas Lord's Day before preaching, he said, superstition has fixed most positively the day of our Savior's birth, although there is no possibility of discovering when it occurred. Fabricius gives a catalog of 136 different learned opinions about, upon the matter and various divines invent weighty arguments for abdicating a date in every month of the year. It was not until the middle of the third century that any part of the church celebrated the nativity of our Lord, and it was not till very long after the Western church had set the example that the Eastern adopted it. Because the day is not known, therefore superstition has fixed it, while... Since the day of the death of our Savior might be determined with much certainty, therefore superstition shifts the date of its observance every year. Where is the method in the madness of superstition? He goes on and says how even though the superstitionist fixes a date, in fact, it's interesting to think about it, the Bible doesn't actually memorialize the birth of Christ. What is memorialized is His death and His resurrection. His death is proclaimed every time we take communion... ...and every time we baptize someone... ...we are proclaiming His death and resurrection... ...to give us newness of life. It's interesting, the world would like to keep Jesus in the manger... ...an insignificant little baby... ...or maybe a great teacher or prophet. But, as is our habit of celebrating... the ...there certainly is no hurt in, in meditating upon it. What a great mystery, what a great wonder... What a great time to come together with our unsaved family and friends to point them to why are we having this party? Why are we having this celebration? It becomes a time of great, building great memories with our family and friends. But with that comes sorrow at times, doesn't it? For in the years where we are missing loved ones that we're used to building these great memories with, they're no longer with us, it can be a time of great sorrow. But if, if you were asked today, is there, a, is there a Christmas that stands out above the rest of Your, your mind would instantly probably go someplace to, to some event, maybe even some great tragedy. I know my wife, uh, one year she talks about uh, they were on their way toward Christmas down the road and um, another driver driving recklessly crashed their car and she, you know she's got a stitches and blood. Whatnot. The thing she remembers the most about it though was, Someone who was driving by stopped and gathered the presents, rewrapped them because they were covered with blood and all that, so they could have them for Christmas. And we hear stories about like that, and we like those stories. The, the world likes to, the feel good stories, the Hallmark movies where someone does something for someone else all over. I don't know how selfless those things typically are. Kids look forward to the day. However, once again, I was struck this year in talking with some of the kids that I, I tutor over across the street and even some of the kids in our own school. And you ask them, Are were you looking forward to Thanksgiving? Are you looking forward to Christmas? What do you do as a family? And they look right at you and you say, You know, Pastor Chad, I really wish we didn't have time off from school. I really wish I kind of skipped through the holiday because it means I have to go and spend time with my dad. We live in a world of much hurt, of much pain, of much sin. And the mystery and the wonder altogether of the incarnation is here is the creator God. Who at the point of his conception takes on the flesh of his creation. But why? So that he could experience the pain, the suffering, the curse of sin, minus the sin itself. So that a great exchange, a great gift could be, could be given to his creation, restoration. Some of you coming to this Christmas season may be facing great uncertainty, great sorrow, maybe a great fear of what the future holds for you. But as we come to this story, as we look at just a couple little verses here in the midst of the story that Brian read for us this morning, we see that God's sovereign goodness orchestrates every detail of our lives for our great joy in His eternal glory. The big idea of the pastor, we're looking at Luke 2, verses 10 through 12 this morning. And I've summarized it this way. Great fear is replaced with great joy through God's great Savior. Great fear is replaced with great joy through God's great Savior. And as we come to the story, we we must back up to to Luke chapter 1 and see that there are two miraculous conceptions that take place that, that lead to this good news of great joy. Keep in mind that the, the, the historical context of both John's conception as the forerunner to the Christ and, and Christ's conception comes after 400 years of silence from God. And, and backed up upon that, thousands of years since the very first promise in Genesis 3.15 that God was going to send someone to crush Satan's head. And as we go through the Old Testament, we see the promises come from God, the prophecies of what this Messiah was to look like. And there's waiting and longing and more sin and more pain and more suffering. And yet at just the right time in history, according to God's eternal plan, God says to Gabriel, it's time. It's time to go give a message to that young woman named Mary. And we look in Luke 1, 29, if you flip back a page in your Bibles. And Gabriel came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Here is a messenger of God sent from God, bearing the very glory of God to one very specific young woman, a very normal, very natural young woman, anticipating her coming marriage. And when the angel comes to her, she's troubled. She's she's fearful. What's going on? What have I done? And the angel reassures her and says, There's no reason for fear here, Mary. This is not God's judgment. This is God's grace. You have found favor. And as he continues to, to outline this, there's great mystery. But in the end, and you, you look at uh, Luke 1, verses 46 through uh, 56. You see this great hymn of praise as she recounts some of the promises and songs from the Old Testament. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on. To his offspring forever. Mary understands there's great mystery in what's about to take place, but she understands that this is a fulfillment of the promises of God promises to, Ab- to Adam, promises to Abraham, and throughout all those generations. And then in Luke 41, she goes to her cousin Mary, or Elizabeth. And as she greets her cousin Elizabeth, already conceived of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, of baby Jesus. When Elizabeth hears her greeting, the baby in her room by a miraculous conception, John the Baptist, leaps for joy. And Elizabeth breaks into praise and to worship and testifies of what God has done. Two very normal women who worship God. And yet out of all the women throughout history, God selected specifically them at that time in history with their unique settings. And then over the next several months, those two women and all of their wondering about what, what was to take place and what this would look like, they would feel these two babies begin to grow, to change, and Mary, feeling the baby's feet and hands move in anticipation of that day when he'll be born. You know, we like songs like Mary Did You Know, or Michael Card has song, entitled songs entitled "Joseph's Songs, and imagine what maybe some of the things they'd been thinking about in those days. But you know, whatever they were thinking, it's not important, or else they wouldn't give them to us. But what is important, Mary was filled with praise and worship for her God and her Savior as she waited in anticipation for the day he would be born. The time was getting close, and then this necessary trip to Bethlehem, all part of God's plan, as recorded by the prophets years before. And then the time had come He's here. God, in the flesh, has a baby. How do you announce that birth? <laughs> when Aiden was born, he was born in the wee hours of the morning. And it, through the beauty of, of technology these days, the first person that was able to hear about his birth was my sister in South Africa. She was already up for the day. So we brought the phone out, FaceTimed with her. She got to see a brand new baby. She was a single woman, never experienced it for herself And she was able to experience something very close to that. What a joy. But that just doesn't seem sufficient, does it? Imagine the angels watching as this happens. The mystery of the incarnation that God would so choose to work in this way. And then God says, it's time to make an announcement. You see those shepherds in the field over there? I want you to tell them. I want you to tell them... And be the first evangelist of this good news. And the angels go. And they say. In verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them. Fear not. For behold I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior. A savior. This will be good news of great joy to all the people. He is the seed of the woman to crush Satan. He is the seed of Abraham through all the nations who will be blessed. He is the descendant, the lion of Judah, of David, who will sit on his throne forever. And yet when the angel appears with his great news of a baby's birth, the immediate response is fear. There's fear. You know, this isn't unusual, as every time we see an angel appearing before man, there is this presence of fear, this anxiety. What is going on? Because the angels are messengers from God's presence, reflecting God's glory. Do you remember back in the Old Testament, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 34... When Moses was receiving the law from God and the instructions for the tabernacle... ...he was up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And do you remember what his face looked like when he came down from Mount Sinai? I know you weren't old enough to see that. But it's recorded in God's Word, right? His face shone after 40 days in God's presence. Angels being in God's presence for thousands of years. Imagine how they must shine with the radiance of God's glory. Do you remember how the Israelites responded to that? I mean, they know this is Moses. He was in God's presence, though. And now he's radiating God's glory. And they said, Moses, put put a veil on your face. You're scaring us. Do you remember how they responded a a few chapters earlier in Exodus 19? When God had had said he established boundaries around Mount Sinai, said make sure the people know, do not... Come near to the mountain. Do not touch this mountain. For if they do, they will be struck dead. And then the cloud descends on the mountain. The thunder, the lightning. And God said, Moses, bring the people close, but not touching the mountains that they might hear my voice. And how did Israel respond when they heard the very voice of God? Moses, you go talk to him. And then tell us what he says. Great fear. You speak to us, Moses, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And on this day in history, when Jesus was born, here is the mystery of it too. The wonder. God set foot on this earth, on this soil. And yet in the manger scene, there is no Fear. The glory of God, the magnificence, the holiness of God is veiled. Just as we sang a few mi- minutes ago in Hark the Herald. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Just as Moses put a veil over his face. So that he could mediate between God and Israel in the Old Testament. So here is Jesus, the baby, the veiled deity that he might mediate between us and his father. Out in the the field, it's a different story. The shepherds are filled with fear. When is the first time we see this fear from an angel, this radiance from an angel? It takes us clear back to Genesis 3, doesn't it? remember after Adam and Eve sinned and God kicked them and removed them out of the garden and what did he put at the entrance to the garden a cherubim with a flaming sword to say do not enter God's presence is too holy you cannot eat of the tree of life any longer you know, this event shows us the reason and the good reason for great fear at the presence of angels or the presence, more importantly, of God's presence or the glory of God, either directly or indirectly. It's because of our rebellion. It's because of man's sin. Now, one of the things that I've noticed in working with kids and working with anyone, we must be clear about what sin is. So let me just give you four descriptions of, of how the Bible describes sin. I'm going to give you, use a little icon or a picture, too, to help you remember. One aspect that the Bible talks about in relationship to sin is that it's the missing the mark of God's goal as revealed to us in His Word. When Adam and Eve were placed in the garden, God was clear. It was no mystery what God expected of them. A second aspect of sin is to rebel against His authority. use a picture of a crown. Here is the Creator God, the one who has established everything in this world, who has designed the way we are to function as men and women in this life, and we rebel against Him in defiance against His rule. I want to be independent, Adam and Eve were desiring. The next picture is one of an optical illusion... Sin is also a distortion of the truth. Before Adam and Eve ever even ate of the fruit of the tree, do you remember what Eve said in relationship to God's instructions? Oh, God said we must not eat of the fruit of the tree nor touch it lest we die. Twisting ever so slightly the very truth that God had revealed to them. And then a, a fourth aspect that the Bible uses to describe sin is an ignorant straying from the right path. That we don't even know how sinful we are, the prophet Jeremiah says. That we are so sinful that we are deceived into thinking that we're better than what we are. Only by God's work in us can we truly understand just how depraved, how sinful, how rebellious, how far we have missed God's goal. That's our story. That's our description and so the, the Israel's fear and desire for a mediator between God and them was, is well-founded. The shepherd's fear here in the field as the angels approach them from God is well-founded. Why has God sent them to me? It, it, does, am I being held accountable for something I said yesterday? Is God going to carry out his judgment on me right here and right now? But wait a minute. The angel said what? Do not fear. Why? I have good news of joy. Great joy. In fact, the word is actually mega joy. Put off your mega fear and put on mega joy. Because an eternal mediator has been born, a great savior has come. So now we think where where do we see this great joy being mentioned in the Bible? One example that instantly comes to my mind is in the book of Nehemiah. Do you remember this story? The children of Israel have constantly been strained from from God's plan for them. Constantly worshipping idols. Constantly strained from what God would have them to do. And so God is removing them. He scatters them. They're in exile in Mesopotamia. And and finally, after 70 years, God brings them back to the land. The temple is rebuilt. The walls are rebuilt. And Nehemiah and Ezra, they're, they're... ...preaching and teaching the word of God to them... ...and great conviction falls upon them... ...and so they weep. They confess their sins. They have a worship service... ...and they come to the service to dedicate... ...the, town, the city of Jerusalem to the Lord. And Nehemiah 12.43 says... "...and they offered up great sacrifices that day... ...and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy." The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What was the source of their joy? It was the hearing of God's word. It was the recognition of their sin, a confession of their sin, a seeking for God's forgiveness and reconciliation with their God. And when they recognized and realized the forgiveness of God, the great rejoicing resounded and they were Joyful and rejoicing. God had given them this rejoicing. You know, this is not the rejoicing that took place a couple weeks ago when the Tennessee Titans beat the Patriots, or whenever the Patriots are beat. This is not the joy that's typically associated with Christmas when kids open up their presents. Or what's typically associated with Christmas in these movies where these feel good stories where someone gives someone. We watched just the other night one of my uh, kids' favorite movies is The Ultimate Gift. Uh, a, a, a spoiled young man who comes from a very wealthy family. And his grandfather passes away and his grandfather doesn't want him to turn out like the rest of his family. So there's a series of things that he has to do to learn the value of money and the value of family and the value of love and the, all these different gifts that are given to us. And as cool as, as that movie is and how this young man does learn what he has as a gift to him, that's not the same thing that the Bible's talking about here when it talks about this great joy I'd rather think of this it's the same joy I see in my counseling office when you have a husband and wife for years have been living in adultery not loving one another unfaithfulness with infidelity and promiscuity in this relationship this close friendship is broken and yet by God's grace He enters into this this marriage and he puts it back together and there's reconciliation and there's forgiveness. But it's even greater than that. For the reconciliation that God secures between us and him is as if we always were faithful in our relationship with him. It's called justification. And when we realize that we are this broken and this defiled, And have rebelled this much against God and yet He sends His Savior to us to reconcile us to Him. And to give us a standing of blameless before Him. That we can stand before the Father in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The great fear has been replaced with great joy. That moves us to to worship. There's another picture of this great joy I want to point to, and it's in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's the end of the story, isn't it? The angel, the messenger of God, glowing with the glory of God's presence... ...comes to the group of sinful men and announces the good news of great joy. Men, don't be afraid. I've got good news for you. Because of the good news I have, listen up. I've come from God... ...to give you this message. God is taking away the reason for your great fear. And he's going to replace it with a great reason for great joy. But this message wasn't just for the shepherds that night, was it? For what does it say? This is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. No, this wasn't just for the Jews. It's it's for all people. As has always been the case. Think back to Genesis 3.15. The first promise of a Savior was given to Adam's race... ...prior to any divisions of tongue or tribe or nation. A seed of the woman would come. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We've just been through the book of Genesis 1 through 12 here recently. Do you remember the promise given to Abraham? Abraham, it's through your seed. One of your descendants is through him... ...that all nations shall be blessed... Psalm 67, uh, verses 1 through 7, even after the temple is built and the worship there is established, we read in Psalm 67, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. You see, it's always been part of God's plan for all the peoples to worship him. Even in the days of the temple and the tabernacle, it was to be used as a light to draw the nations to a worship of God. Just as a lantern in the middle of the night will draw moths to the flame. But we have a problem. Because in the day that Adam sinned there in the Garden of Eden, that sin permeated through his race with him. So we come to the book of Romans chapter 1. Paul says... That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world so that they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, I can figure this God out. I know a better way. I'm all right without him, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what I find very interesting, you go on down to Romans 1, 28 and 29. Paul begins to list these kinds of people filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And the temptation is for us to stop right there. They say, boy, boy, they're really bad, Lord. This world is really, really bad. But Paul then writes Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And he summarizes it in Romans 3. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Friends, apart from this incarnation, apart from the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are people who should be filled with great fear. Deserving of God's wrath. But Jesus came to replace that great fear with great joy. How? We look at David's attitude in Psalm 51, when he recognized his sin. He says, against you, only you have I sinned and done was evil in your sight. So you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. See the contrast between our conception and Jesus' conception? Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than the snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. And create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, David was not just interested in what people saw on the outside... He recognized that his act of adultery was something that was wrong on the inside. And he recognized it before God. He says, God, I have sinned against you. I am deserving of your judgment, but please blot it out. Give me forgiveness. And make me new that I don't even desire to commit acts of adultery. I do not even lust after a woman anymore. And restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So where does this great joy come from? It from confession of sin. A recognition that I am fallen before God. It comes from seeking God's gracious salvation. Saying, God, I am deserving of your righteous judgment. But please, please give me grace and mercy. Deliver me from the power and presence of sin, the desire of sin, that I might desire and determine to walk in your righteousness. All people need this good news. So God chose one rebellious nation to be the vehicle of redemption to all rebellious nations. Do you see that? So that all people, from people from every tribe, every tongues, every nation, every family, might one day stand around the throne of God as we see in Revelation 5, 9... And sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be around God's presence and God's glory one day. And the new heavens and new earth. No more sin, no more sadness, no more sorrow. However, all peoples does not mean every person. Who are the people, as we see here? Who are the people? Well, I want to start in Revelation 20 11 to 15 to show you who they are not. And it is a picture that should be greatly terrifying for any this morning who are here who are not part of God's children. I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it from his presence earth and sky fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was open which is the book of life and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But God, in his kindness lead sinners to repentance. Romans 2, 4-5, through God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If you are here this morning, you have never bowed your knee to God the Father, seeking His forgiveness for your sins, seeking His solution for your sins, seeking His salvation and transformation in your life. This is God's grace leading you to repentance right now. But if you do not bow the knee, then instead of receiving God's grace and God's forgiveness and receiving God's joy, you are instead storing up for yourself God's wrath. The very wrath... That Jesus came to absorb on our behalf. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. When I describe the word propitiation to kids, I point them to the forest fires out in California. I say, you see those fires? You see how it burns everything in its sight? And it doesn't stop until it runs out of fuel. God's wrath for His children has burned out on Jesus for all their sins. So there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has been their propitiation. And in order for Jesus to be that great Savior, He had to take on human flesh. He had to be eternally God. He had to be part of Adam's race. He had to be tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin, the book of Hebrews says, so that he could die as our propitiation and a great exchange could take place. As one man's sin led to the sin and death of all, so one man's righteousness leads to forgiveness and righteousness for many. I've included a chart, you might have to skip ahead a few slides here, but I've included a chart that kind of compares the first Adam to the second Adam. I want you to consider it here for a moment. The first Adam was the created one. The second Adam is the creator. The first Adam distorted and denied the very truth of God. The second Adam claimed to be the very truth of God. The first Adam desired to bring glory to himself. The second Adam desired only to glorify his Father in heaven. The first Adam, as a result of his sin, darkness covered the earth. The second Adam was the light of the world to expose the darkness and to chase the darkness away. The first Adam was disciplined by God. The second Adam, it pleased God to promote him. The first Adam, his, his end is death. The second Adam died. Do you get the picture? He didn't deserve that death. He always did what the Father wanted him to do, and yet he still died. Why? So a great exchange could take place. Because that wasn't his ultimate end. He rose again three days later, conquering death, conquering sin. And now, what is he? He is exalted before the Father, even now at the right hand of the Father. And one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, it will be every person. Amen. Why not you today? This is God's desire to give you a great exchange that you would walk in the ways of Jesus in truth and in light and in obedience for the glory of the Father. Jesus is the Christ, the Lord's anointed one, the one that was promised years ago. The world would like to keep Jesus in the manger though, wouldn't they? An insignificant birth, an insignificant baby, an insignificant couple. It was a cute story, it's fun. Or maybe he's just a great teacher, a great prophet. We'll, we'll, we'll give him that. But not the rabbi, not the greatest prophet. Even the Jews in Jesus' day recognized that he claimed to be God, for that's the act of blasphemy for which they wanted to kill him. C.S. Lewis has so clearly pointed out that there's, there's only three options we can look at Jesus. If he truly claimed to be God, he's either a liar, he, he knew he wasn't God, but he, he confessed that anyway. Well, that's not the kind of guy you want to lead your religion. Or he's a lunatic. He really thought he was God, but he really isn't. You want something like that to be your leader? The only other option is that he really is God. He knew it. He claimed it. And if that's the case, you better listen very carefully to everything he teaches. He is one you want to trust and obey in everything he says. So when the teachings of our religions... And prophets contradict what Jesus said. You must trust Jesus over these things, these teachers. When the teachings of Catholicism, Jewish rabbis, Mormon elders, Muslim imams, Gandhi, Muhammad himself, Joseph Smith, or even an elder at Gray Road Baptist Church says something that's contrary to what Jesus teaches, correct them. Because Jesus is The great God and Savior. He is the final prophet, the final priest, and the final king. Great fear is replaced with great joy through God's great Savior. And oh, by the way, shepherds, here's the sign. You'll find a baby lying in a manger, swaddling clothes. The only thing unusual about that sign is that this is the Messiah. What in the world? A baby. Fully man, dependent upon the watch and care of loving parents, needing rest, provision, protection, pants being changed, a nursing mom, swaddling clothes in a manger, humble surroundings, no pomp, no royal robes, no shining glow, no halos, recognizable only because of God's revelation to them. And how did the angels respond to this good news? Celebration, glory to God in the highest! You know, even to this day, they watch the church and how God interacts with the church and they're filled with wonder at this marvelous thing of God's grace. The shepherds, they listened, let us go with haste and search out what has been made known to us. And they glorified and praised God. They proclaimed it abroad, the first evangelist, and came back rejoicing all the more. But what about the general public? Luke 2.18 how did the general public respond to what the shepherd said? All who heard it wondered. And? You go to Matthew 2, King Herod. He was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. He was jealous. He feigned worship. How about the chief priests and scribes in Matthew 2, 4 to 8? How do they respond when, when the, the wise men come looking for this, this king that's been born? They get out the scrolls. He's be born in Bethlehem. That it? Won't you go with him? But all those reactions aside, what's most important today is our reaction, isn't it? Is Jesus just an insignificant baby? The birth of a great teacher, a prophet? Oh, if you are here this morning, you have never bowed to Him as your Savior and as your King and Lord. Do so today. Pray and ask the Spirit to give you understanding that He would give you the gift of faith, the trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Seek for answers in God's Word, prayerfully asking God to make His Word known to you and repent of your sins. Now There'll be no angels today declaring this is the truth. They already have. It's right here. Along with a lot of other testimony. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's promise. Won't you call out to him? But if you are a child of God today, oh my. The response first is worship, isn't it? Wonder, amazement, a submission, a a proclamation, right? If God has done this for us, well, why wouldn't we go and share it with others around us? ...to the world that's, that's storing up God's wrath for them. And you know in the end, whether it's fear you facing the future or great trials... ...James 1, 2, the 4 says there's great joy possessed even in great trials. Why? Because we have a great Savior. We know the end. 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, Paul talks about how the body... ...and it's decay and in it's groaning, how it wastes away day in and day out. And he says, but that's no reason for fear or sadness... It's a reminder of great joy that as your body wastes away day by day, your inner man is being renewed day by day. And therefore, whether you are home in this body or absent, may it be your goal to live pleasing and glorifying to God. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, We don't even grieve death and look at death the same way as the world. For we do not sorrow those who have no hope, but we know that we all will be raised again. And so in this great Savior, there is great joy and great comfort in knowing that if we have a future resurrection and we will be together with God in His presence forever and ever. I want to close today with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I say to, then to you who would know the only Peace, only true peace and lasting joy, come you to the babe of Bethlehem. Come, you little children, you boys and girls, come. For he also was a boy, the holy child Jesus, is the children's Savior, and says, Suffer the little children to come to me, and forbid them not. Come hither, you maidens, you who are still in the mourning of your beauty. And like Mary, rejoice in God your Savior. The virgin bore him on her bosom, so come you and bear him in your heart, saying, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You men, in the plenitude of your strength, remember how Joseph cared for him and watched with reverent solicitude his tender years. Be you to his cause as a father and a helper. Sanctify your strength to his service. You woman, advanced in years, ye matrons and widows, come like Anna and bless the Lord that you have seen the salvation of Israel. And you whoreheads, you older men, who like Simeon are ready to depart. Come ye and take the Savior in your arms, adoring Him as your Savior in your all. You shepherds, you simple-hearted, you who toil for your daily bread, come and adore the Savior and stand not back, you wise men. You who know by experience and by meditation, peer into deep truth, come you and like the sages of the East, bow low before His presence and make it your honor to pay honor to Christ the Lord. For my own part, the incarnate God is all my hope and trust. I have seen the world's religion at the fountainhead and my heart has sickened within me. I come back to preach by God's help, yet more earnestly the gospel, the simple gospel of the Son of Man. Jesus, Master, I take thee to be mine forever. May all in this house, through the rich grace of God, be led to do the same. And may they all be thine great Son of God in the day of thine appearing. For I thy sake. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, what a mystery, what great love, what great joy. May your glory be seen through us, Lord, that we might proclaim the good news of great joy to all peoples. And we pray that your word will not return void but that hearts will be transformed and changed by your grace, through your word, through your Son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.